Bonjour. I'm Terrence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terrence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. On the line with me uh, in Washington, D.C., just back from uh, a wonderful life in uh, Italy and France and all of us, and Norway most recently, is Jay Byrne Murphy. Is that for James, uh, Jay? That is for James indeed. Okay, good, good, three good Irish names. Yes, and my, my mother was O'Hagan and the grandmother Moriarty, and I've got O'Connell, so it's all lined up. No, you're 100% all the way. All from the South? All from the, yes, actually, all from the South. Okay, none of that Belfast uh, tainted blood to, in your system. Uh, we are. We love to visit Belfast and all the North as well. Okay, terrific. Anyway, I want to get started. Uh, Le Deal, not to be confused with the art of the deal by that other, uh, actually he was German, if I believe correctly, Mr. Trump. Um, this book is interesting in many levels. Uh, first of all, for anybody that seriously wants to go to, into business in Europe, it's, it's a must read. And I would say even for small business people like myself, uh, there's a lot to be learned from, from your experience, uh, particularly beginning with the, the cultural divide. Uh, MacArthur Glenn, um, the company that you were involved with uh, and ultimately, I guess, became a CEO of, if that's the proper title for you, was involved in developing the very first high-end fashion outlets in Europe. Uh, but before we get there, you who spoke no, uh, no French. In any, any event, you didn't speak French. You certainly were, I guess the word is ignorant of customs uh, in Europe. And you thought you were going down to the birthplace of Audie Murphy, Hillsboro, Texas, right down I-35 from Dallas. Talk about that meeting with the mayor and the five minutes it took to make that multi-million dollar deal. Well, uh, all of Texas is about business and it's about job creation in those areas that are not uh, urban uh, dense. And the, the concept is always locating a site between two big urban centers connected by a fast-moving highway. And so not many people knock on his door and say, we're going to bring 500 jobs in the first year and 2,000 over five years. And he just looked up and said, are you serious? We said, yes, here's the proof uh, of other sites. And he, took, he reached over, grabbed our drawing, and signed him and said, that's all you need in this town. This is Texas, man. We do business in Texas. Yeah, big business. Yeah. And I would say, uh, as we get through this discussion, we'll find out that why it's not quite the same thing in uh, in Europe. Well, you you arrived, you selected a site uh, right not too far from uh, uh, Monet in in Vernon, and uh, talk about that experience. You showed up full of energy, full of positive vibes, and what happened? Uh, there were big protests. There were uh, retailers. Uh, you have to remember Europe as the old world treats its downtown urban core, uh, which is populated by small retailers, as a living museum, as an architectural gem, and as the dynamic of day-to-day -day life in France. And I salute that as we should. What they perceived was that we were gonna put them out of business as an off-price concept, just like their hyperscalers on the grocery store side had done in a number of places. There were notable differences, but they weren't gonna be patient enough to hear about notable differences. And you were also following in the footsteps of that great uh, marketing genius, uh, the Walt Disney Company. 
who decided they would bring uh, Walt Disney to Europe. Talk about what they did and how it made it more difficult for you. Well, they opened up just uh, two years before I arrived, um, and they did that great American thing, which is not recognizing they're no longer in Kansas, Toto, and they take an American concept in its pure form. They shipped over uh, a dozen or two dozen uh, American executives um, to uh, implement the concept in the foreign culture, and boom, that's what they did, almost word for word, stroke for stroke. And then when they opened the gates and it didn't quite work out the same way, in fact, it was a big, big problem, uh, then the adjustments started. And so they did not take context into consideration. They did not take culture, foreign culture, into consideration. They said, this is how we do it. This is how we're going to do it. No one here can grow a mass, uh, uh, a mustache or a beard. There will be no drinking of wine at a Disneyland, not even during lunch uh, in the edge of Paris. And that's how it is. Well, nobody asked the French their opinion of that ahead of time, and that was a problem. They also, by the way, they only did their due diligence on site tours and the final decision between Barcelona and Paris in good weather, the good weather months. And nine months of the year in Marne la Vallée outside of Paris, there's a lot of rain and a lot of overcast. That was a surprise to them. Now, you didn't really learn this until after the fact, until you got into negotiations. You, if I read you correctly, you thought at some level you could kind of mimic what they did in a you know, slightly smaller scale. Yes. Oh, yes. I, I thought I had such a powerful concept, and I, the, the timeline between having the idea and moving to Paris was so short that I never undertook sufficient due diligence. I figured I'll do that when I get there. Um, and that was because I had some pressure to do so soon from the SNL banking crisis, which less, uh, left uh, our business in America in, in a weakened condition. Uh, yeah, why don't you explain what your business was just before that, just before the, the SNL crisis in 2008? We did very large mixed-use high-end projects in primarily in downtown Washington, D.C. We combined historic preservation of old movie theaters or uh, of old, old office buildings and brought them up to speed, um, sometimes gutting them uh, all the way down to the walls and sometimes uh, preserving them right down to every last square inch. But they were sophisticated and complicated, and they, the retailing was only uh, street-level retail, nothing like this out-of-town big box or small, a collection of small box outlet retail. We backed the company that did this in America called MacArthur Glen financially, but we were not the operators. So, in other words, I had a steep learning curve uh, rinsing me of naivete. You know, one of the things in terms of the cultural divide, I'm reminded, uh, I, I was in the Hispanic media business for about 15 years. Uh, I'm not responsible for these two major eras, but uh, you might remember that Braniff uh, had these beautiful leather seats, and they, back when you could distinguish an airline by the quality of service, and they uh, invited their, uh, their guests to fly in cuero. Now, they thought they were saying fly in leather, but in fact, what they were saying was fly naked. <laughs> so that quickly went away, and then uh, Chevy of the of the uh, no, Nova automobile, uh, Nova meaning somewhat new, and you know, in I guess in in, in Greek, but it, in in Spanish it would be Nova, and no no macho guy is going to buy a car at Nova. <laughs> well, you had you had your moment with that brand out of Beaverton, Oregon. You want to explain that to uh, my listeners? I'm not sure I want to, but I will. <laughs> 
So uh, I did speak uh, years before, 13 years before, I, I spoke some French, uh, primarily because I, 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 I sailed halfway around the world from Boston to New Zealand, and I spent almost a year in French Polynesia. Well, it turns out I knew a lot about speaking uh, vocabulary of beers, boats, and beaches, but nothing about business. And so I had three key American brands under my arm. When I went to Europe, uh, they would join me if I had all the right criteria. And one of them was Nike. And I looked at it and I said, well, of course, you don't say Nike in French. That can't possibly be right. It would be Nike. And uh, being so confident in my French, uh, which I shouldn't have been, I went off and made presentations in broken French to chambers of commerce and to mayors and lots of people. And I was always, it's a very jovial occasion. They were laughing, so I laughed and off I went. Well, finally, about the 10th presentation, uh, a young man who was advising me said, can I have a word with you? You can't say Nike. And I said, well, it's French. I know it's Nike. They know it's Nike. He says, no, 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 that's not the point. What's the point? He says, Nike is something very graphic in French. You can't say it. And I said, how graphic could it be? And he said, well, it means it's slang for bestial fornication. And it's not often I'd be... I can really embarrass myself, but boy, did I go to extremes on that one. No wonder they were laughing. Well, there was a, a shirt company back in the uh, early 70s that I represented at one time called Nick N-I-K-N-I-K, and it was obviously Harold Lincoln Shulman knew exactly what he was doing. There was these beautiful prints, uh, almost like pieces of art designed by an Italian designer executed in nylon, perfect to wear when you went to disco dancing in about... 73 or 74 but i don't think anybody really got it in america no somewhere somewhere <laughs> they got it all right so now you're uh, you, you now you're in france uh, which you've never lived in before uh limited uh, scale in the language you have at that point i believe one child and a second one just about to arrive yes correct, correct? okay and uh, you go off looking for sites so as you described uh, the the process and you found something called toi T-R-O-Y-E-S, about an hour and a half out of Paris, I believe, on the on a train. And what was so appealing about Trois? And um, talk a bit about that evolution. Well, it didn't take long before uh, even my naive American perspective uh, woke up to the fact that uh, commerce in France and much of Europe is, uh, there's a lot of political elements to it. And if you don't master the politics, if you don't understand the politics, that's part of the context, then you're not going to get anywhere. And uh, after concluding, I'm... What are the uh, three rules of, uh, like, real estate in America? In America, it's location, location, location. In France, it's politics, politics, politics. Ignore that, and surprises are coming your way. Almost all of them unpleasant and sudden. Uh, So I, I woke up to that reality and said, well, wait a minute, I need a storyline. How can my concept be an attribute to any given town? And the answer was uh, Troyes was a textile manufacturing town from the 13th century, continuous up to uh, and up to that time, the late 20th century. And so I went down to the mayor there, who was also a very important um, senator. And uh, and I worked the system. A deputy, I guess, to explain the system. The Assemblée Nationale would be the equivalent of our congressman, and the, the senator would be a deputy. And deputy. And uh, you have to start with the mayor. The mayor signs your birth certificate. The mayor signs your death certificate. And the mayor will sign everything in between. And it's important to know, is the mayor from the right or if the mayor is from the left? And you approach things accordingly. 
It's a seven-person uh, panel that votes on whether or not I can proceed with my such a project. Uh, four of them are politicians. Get the picture, they control the whole thing. Uh, and so the rationale was they were losing manufacturing jobs. We were going to come in and enhance the manufacturing base by A, creating jobs, but also we were going to clear their inventory. It's the end of season goods. It's the end of season stock of raw material that are put into outlet stores. Now in America, to be fair, uh, they, they learned the tricks and they now do MFO, made for outlets. But that is way too controversial to do in Europe. And I came up with a charter that every customer signed that said they'd never do that and had legal implications. And in French, instead of saying ours were outlet stores or magasin d'usine, which has a low-end market connotation, they were boutique de fabricant, which is a manufacturer's boutique. Um, and that whole image, the whole rationale, the whole economics of it really appealed to uh, the elected officials of Trois. Now, the problem was, uh, I may be getting ahead of the story. Sounds like you're learning, or at least you think you are. Uh, I, I, yes, but I have all the scars to prove that there were reasons why I learned, too. Like using Meek up in the uh, town of Lille in the Northeast, and I'd so embarrassed myself, I decided I'd wait two years before I go back to those people again. Because if I didn't know what Meek meant, I had no idea how to go to work in France. Um, so you start with your politicians at a local level, you have the regional, and you have the national. You work all three levels or you're not going to get these. These approvals were extremely controversial at that time because Edward Balladur was prime minister, appointed by Jacques Chirac. Jacques Chirac had wanted to be president and re-elected president, and he needed the retailer's vote. And I shouldn't say he was appointed. Um, he managed to be appointed uh, so that Jacques could then run for the presidency. And the first thing that Edward Balladur, the prime minister, said when in office, his first speech at the Assemblée Nationale was, I am freezing every retail development all across France. You can't even expand a gas station to sell more Snickers bars. Uh, it's off the books. And there I showed up with a big retail development in hand. And how many hundreds of thousands of euros are you in right now? Before, or you've already? No. No, not yet. You haven't gone into the hole yet. No, millions. <laughs> no, this is. Uh, it took. Uh, I just summarized a couple of years worth of work. Uh, uh, no, we were million. By the time the actual vote came up, uh, the, you know, remember, I came from a very weakened company back in a uh, economy in crisis and the downturn of. SNL crisis, we did not have a lot of cash. I had everything riding on this. We, my wife and I bet the farm and we bet it without even knowing it because I picked the wrong country, but it was too late to switch countries. I didn't have the cash to switch countries. So on you go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and you, uh, so you begin to move along and you learn the meaning of the expression uh, entre le poire et le fromage. <laughs> yes. Uh, wait, wait, wait. First, you might want to talk about that first lunch where you learned the lesson. Describe that that lunch. Because, I mean, in, in, in America, I'm old enough to remember the three martini lunch. Uh, a little bit older than you. But things got a little, you know, people started drinking bottled water and, and Chardonnay. But what were you treated to on, on your first visit to the mayor of Troyes? You have to remember that every, uh, France is covered with vineyards and has a very active wine industry, and every region is hyper-proud 
of their terroir, of the wine that comes out of their particular chemical soils and how it, the angle of the southern sun and where's the water, body of water nearby, and it all affects taste. Therefore, that pride of what their terroir produces is on display to any foreigner or any visitor at any time. So you walk into the mayor's office and he's invited you for lunch. It's very important he takes you to lunch in the most popular restaurant in town so everybody can see that oh, he's entertaining a foreign investor. He's doing his job. He makes a big deal about that. And But beforehand, you meet in his office, so he gives you the grand reception. He offers you um, think of as a cocktail, uh, an aperitif, and it could be gin on the rocks. It could be uh, some vodka. It could be almost anything you want, but you must, of course, start with that. And in France, entertaining and the sense of conviviality is extremely important. It's to establish, amongst other things, what's known as the bon contact, to have a, a rapport entre, uh, between two people especially if they want to do business, they will not get to business if they don't have a bon contact, especially if you're a politician. That means that after you've had that first gin or vodka, he says, oh, very good. Now let me show you what else I have here before we go. And then it's probably a glass of champagne, especially in Troyes, which is the capital of the Champagne region. So you have a glass of that, and then they go off and you have a train of people following you because this is important because there's an international investor. I didn't want to tell him my pocket had, didn't have much money in it to invest. But anyway, we go off and train six people following us. When you get to the restaurant, the champagne is already waiting for you because they know the mayor is coming. And then they get into the red wine, depending upon the region. And they will have one or two red wines and then a white wine or a dessert wine. Uh, and then your coffee, which you must take. And that caffeine shoots all that alcohol through your system before you get to the post-cafe or the, uh, the cordial. Well, before the coffee came, the first several lunches, I was bombed. I am not used to this. This is not the American style. Um, the two or three martini lunches are long over. I agree with you. Um, and I never did those kind of lunches. And I mean, what happens then, I, even though I kept trying to divert the conversation back to business at hand, I didn't know about the concept of um, entre le fromage et de deux. You have, that's between the cheese course and the dessert course, you have, call it 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, that's when you do business, I eventually learned. That's when the, the mayor will raise his eyebrows, look your way, cock his chin up and say, okay, bon, qu'est-ce qui se passe? What's going on? Why are we here? And Well, that's your Hillsborough that's moment, your Hillsborough moment. it took you three hours to get to the 15 minutes. And about four drinks or five. And so... Some. I counted more uh, in my room. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And in my uh, capacity, I mean, the first time I just slurred my way through the introduction and I had a French advisor with me and he just kindly tapped my knee under the table and took it from there because I could not. The scary thing is, fast forward two years later, even a year later, I had done this with so many mayors and so many communes all across France I sailed through the coffee in the, in the uh, post-cafe. I was in shape. I could drink with any mayor anywhere. And on a train back after one of those, the fifth lunch of the week, it occurred to me, is this a strength or is this a problem? I'm not sure, but it sure is fun. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I just, uh, again, back and forth with the cultural thing. Uh, when Cheryl MacArthur, whom you described in a way that made me want to fall in love in the book, uh, shows up, uh, to to make a presentation in this lycra dress, I 
whatever. I kind of see, a, well, whatever. You, we all know what, what we're looking at. And <laughs> discover that, in fact, this was, a, this was good. It wasn't misinterpreted by the French. It was perfectly interpreted. Uh, I remember a scene in the movie Ninochka where Melvin Douglas is dealing with these three goofy commissars from Russia. It's all a spoof on, uh, on Russia. He loved their five-year plans every five years. And these guys figured they're going to walk. They have, they have the rights to the, prince, the, the crown princess swan as diamonds. It's going to be a piece of cake. He says, gentlemen, have you seen the French fashions this year? When Madame sits in the box and lifts that skirt up to about knee length, you don't see the prayer. <laughs> and, and in effect, what you describe, <laughs> you thought it was going to be a nightmare. In America, it would have been a nightmare. But here, ah, ha, 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 everything's oh, fine. It was... Vive la, Vive France. la France. And by the way, they totally forgot I was even at the table. I was just a, a piece of fruit in a bowl there, period. <laughs> no, I've, Well, you learned something. You kept your mouth shut. <laughs> That's right. So when, with all of this work, how did, it, how did you finally nail it down, at this, this first European uh, outlet? Um, by selling aggressively, you have to remember context. First, you have to understand there is context, and then what are the nuances of the context in that particular locale? You, they have a tourism industry based on champagne and the uh, uh, and the harvest, et cetera, et cetera. So you play into everything you can. There's a certain periodicity to the school vacation schedule. You play into that, and you say this is why it's good for your town. And in the end, despite the national ban against any retail at all, I received the first. And to this day, the one and only unanimous consent in favor of a retail establishment, one of these big ones. Um, and it, it was front page news in Paris, which took me by surprise. The next morning, there it was, boom, La Tribune and Figaro and all of them, because it was in direct defiance of Jacques Chirac. And of course, that is a problem when you have been outshone by the, uh, the provinces, because in Paris, all roads, in France, all roads lead to Paris. Uh, and everyone said immediately, be careful of the protest or the uh, appeal. And uh, 12 hours before this, the 30-day appeal period was to expire, sure enough, on orders of the prime minister, which he was carefully, no fingerprints, the national government appealed it and said, this will not stand. You, you local provinces, you did not hear our national policy. There will be no retail anywhere. Not appropriate. And at this point, how many hundreds of millions of dollars you went to this project and how many years of your life have been expended on it? It was uh, two and a half, almost three years. It was several millions of dollars because we hadn't started construction yet. This is all at the approval phase. Uh, but millions of dollars, um, and I didn't. we did not have endless millions of dollars. So if this didn't work, I was probably packing my bags and heading home soon before the next rent check came. And so everything was riding on this. And there was a blackmail attempt uh, against me uh, right before the vote. There were, I was being followed every time I appeared in town. Uh, I was getting phone calls to my home Paris apartment. No one telling me how they got my phone number, but in France they can do so. So there was huge pressure, then huge relief when I received it. And I got all this press and I thought it was great, but all the press did was piss off the Elysee Palace really badly. That's the, the top of the government. And so they dropped this appeal on it. And then when uh, the prime minister and the would-be, soon-to-be president of the republic says, this will not stand, you got a problem. That's, that's a bad day. And I had a bad day that stretched into bad weeks and months because it's about six months before you can have your hearing and get a decision out of it. Um, so 
chapter one ended like that with a great triumph and uh, and the La Tribune article in French had the uh, headline ne jamais jamais renoncer never never ever give up they quoted me as saying and then in the subtitle it said but will Chirac give up question mark and he didn't and they came and they appealed it big problem okay now how do you deal with that problem you mean after you get through the psychological uh, crater that you've right, right? You pick yourself up off the off the ground and you right. go to uh, your lawyer. And we hired the Gilles Lorret Noel, the very uh, highest, most respected law firm in in the country, on day one. And I had the biggest construction company, Bouygues, which uh, had one hundred and four thousand employees in France. I also hired them day one. So we had these aligned interests. How do I get past this? What what do I do? And they said, it's very political now, so be prepared to go somewhere else. Because if you lose this, you're not coming to France, at least not while he's president. And at the end of the day, we turned it on them. They were telling, in effect, a region that had voted 7-0, all four politicians who never agree, and the uh, unions, and uh, the retail representatives, the petit commerçants, all of them agreed for this town at this time, this will replace jobs. This is fresh capital from abroad. This is win, win, win. And I did many things. One example, if you're in France and lunch is so important, I said, I won't put any restaurants in my, they have, in my uh, center. They will have to go downtown to have lunch. Well, it turns out in the first year we had 3 million visitors. So uh, they're not staying at our place for lunch. The downtown restaurateurs and hoteliers loved us. But I, 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 I get ahead of myself. We go to the uh, National Appeal Council for this, which had a Supreme Court justice, had a president of the Senate on it. It had uh, all these very, very high level people. And I'm trying to present in French, which is barely improving. And as we walked out, you had no idea what they were going to decide. They asked the hardest questions and they asked subtle questions. They raised their eyebrows at my answers. They looked at each other in my terrible accent. Um, and I walked out and it took, uh, 36 hours. And I was in a meeting with Polo Ralph Loren, the president for Europe in a very important, and the phone rings at his desk and he picks it up. And then he looks at me and he says, the call's for you, I said, for me, how does anybody even know I'm here? And I picked it up and it was the, the lead lawyer. And he said, we have a decision. Are you alone? I said, no, I can't talk here. And I finished the meeting, I ran to a cafe, called him back, and he said, I can't believe it, it's the first ever. You've been approved at the national level for retail development, and furthermore, the wording of it implies they're not doing this again. And I said, well, thank you. You mean they just licensed for me a monopoly? Thank you very much. <laughs> and then then very good. I went for the lunch of a lifetime at the Faubourg Saint Honoré. Uh, do you remember the restaurant? It was two down from uh, Hermes store, and I do not offer. A, a memorable yes, meal. Yes, very, very, very what, what, what were you drinking? What kind of champagne was that? Uh, well, it was from champagne, so, uh, but normally, of course. <laughs> um, uh, cl uh, probably La Grande I would, I would imagine. Well, so from that uh, start where you had a yellow legal pad, uh, a pen with ink in it, in a new apartment, and very lim limited amount of money, relatively speaking, ultimately, what did the uh, turnover uh, become?
for these group of centers that you had in France? In France, oh, a couple hundred million dollars per year, uh, 10 million visitors, um, and a third, let's see, 42% of which we could certify went downtown and spent money and where they spent it. It was, it was a hit and it was a big hit. And uh, there were people who opposed it, mayors uh, at the adjoining commune. I won't go into the story, it's in the book, but it's, um, it's sorted. And, uh, and in the end, he and that whole commune came around who opposed us bitterly, unless we did certain things I was not gonna do, and begged us, please, could we add another phase? Could they work with us on parking? Could they get a shuttle bus for us? It was a big hit and very successful and remains so to this day. Do you ever have that glass of champagne with uh, Jacques Chirac? <laughs> uh, I had it. I was in the Elysee Palace several times, and I had it with chief of staff, but not uh, with uh, Monsieur okay. le Président. Jacques never came down. I, I, I have no like Jacques as as mayors go. He's a very elegant yeah, very, guy. He was um, he was yeah, good. Yeah, very much so. All right. So uh, before we cross the pond to your effort in in England, where you theoretically speak the language, mm -hmm. in spite of what Mr. Churchill said about Americans and, and the British. Describe in a, a little bit about your life and what was it you, that you personally liked, you and your wife and children, about living in, living in Paris? In between all of this work, it seemed like you didn't have a lot of time, but when you had a few free moments. Well, one of the things we did is uh, we did something, we adapted the uh, French lifestyle to a certain extent, and uh, we arrived with one daughter, and a year and a half later, we had a second daughter, and a year and a half later, we had a third daughter, and um, and then later on, we went on to have our fourth daughter. So uh, we, we, life outside of the business was amazing for a young American couple who end up speaking French um, passably well for all sorts of uh, social interactions. It was rich in all the culture that people, by which it is stereotyped, but once you get past the obvious touristy activities and you have Parisian friends and friends in the provinces and they don't just go out to dinner with you, they invite you into their apartment, that's a big step. When you get that first invitation to their home, it's not like an American, hey, drop by and have a drink. Uh, it's very important. And then you realize what you've done is you haven't just set up a company, you've come over here as a couple and you've tested every one of your basic assumptions. This is how I live my life. This is how I allocate my time and my energy. And you go over there and you realize, well, those are their assumptions. That's not what these people are doing. And it, you start peeling back the onion. And the longer you're there, the more it how was that made? How has that made your life richer back in America after having had that experience of living here? First of all, it's made it so much richer, but much more multidimensional. Uh, and in the end, I lived in Europe with the family for 13 years. Um, we spent a lot of time in France and then in the UK, but we spent time living in Italy and now lots in the Nordics. And you come back to America and you, you just don't think of a border in America anymore. Subconsciously, you always did growing up. Well, here's America. That's where life ends and begins. And that is just, it's not true. It never was true. Um, and at the same time, you also realize, well, what's Europe like? People always say, what's it like in working in Europe? Well, there isn't really a Europe. There's a, there are not so many nation state boundaries that are of immense importance. There are regions and they may cross national boundaries, 
Belgian and France in the north. Uh, southern Germany is very different than northern Germany. And so you get, it's like a kaleidoscope experience as you start working and traveling longer term across Europe. And, you know, you, when you're in America, you stay in Kansas, Toto. It's one big media market and so one huge cultural influence when everybody, you know, watches the commercials on the Super Bowl. It, just within the UK, there are six or seven different television media markets. And all of Europe is that way. Just, there are, I think, how many you know better than I, 3,000 communes in France? And the mayor, is that involved in every family's life? It's, it's a very different program. It is rich, it is wonderful, it's worth fighting every energy, every step of the way to preserve it in the right way. The challenge is how do you preserve it and modernize it and keep the new jobs coming because the old jobs, they just don't stay there forever, not like they used to. That's the challenge. No, that's, that's the, big, the, the big difficulty here is, uh, you, uh, what did you call say? I think at the time there were only 256 cheeses, but you know, how can you govern a country with 256 cheeses? There might be 350 now. Uh, very individu individualistic uh, in, in many ways, uh, more so than, than we are. So I want to get over, we, we, we cross to London, you do the Cheshire Project. I don't want to give it short shrift. But, but then you move on to Swindon, which uh, if I go back to your the first project you talk about in the book was the Warner Movie Theater in D.C. that you completely redid. Uh, Swindon has, uh, was a railroad uh, development area, and you've created a railroad museum there. So at some level, you're beginning to become somewhat of an urban planner, although I don't believe any of your background academically at that place with the red sweater up in, in Cambridge or the orange sweater when you went to the Cavaliers uh, Graduate School prepared you for a career in urban planning. You're kind of the Robert Moses of the shopping center business. Yes, and it comes back, to, as I said earlier, you can go to Hillsborough, Texas and drop a, a pin on the map and say, there's my outlet center. You don't do that so easily, and you shouldn't in Europe. First of all, you don't drive an hour outside of town without going through about three or four more towns, so it's hard to find a place all by itself. And secondly, uh, because it's so compact, and certainly the UK is, then what you do has a ripple effect. You must take into account that ripple effect, which can be negative, but if you do it right, can be extremely positive. It's usually a blend of the two, and you want to make sure that you're in a high ratio of positive to negative. And in Swindon, it was the former Islambad Brunel, who's a great engineer for the railroads. He also designed not just the railroad cars and the, especially the bridges, but the factories that built these things. We bought his original factory, which had laid dormant for 17 years. Um, uh, Prince Charles had recently launched his uh, Heritage Through Regeneration Trust, take old buildings, repurpose them, bring them back, but wasn't getting much traction. There are a lot of old buildings across the UK, obviously, received it. And then we took these, which were acres in, in, in size, very big and intertwined, and we converted them to outlet centers, preserving 97% of the original material, preserving and restoring, and then put our stores in, which are basically boxes, but you could take those boxes out later through demolition and have the original structure there. And it was, again, a huge hit, which got the attention of many people. Well, this was obviously a very smart business decision, but I, but I sense that, that personally, uh, this was very interesting to you to save these buildings, to be involved in, in the history. 
bringing that history to the attention of, let's say, younger children. No, that's exactly right. That's why I ended reading up right doing on projects that? I did in Washington. How can you say <laughs> yeah, no and yes, yes in no. the same I mean, It same brings moment. with it huge challenges. It's 30% more expensive to do a restoration project of an historic building than to build new at a minimum. Um, you have many entrenched interests that have a lot to say about it when you're just trying to run a business or establish one. So it's twice the headache, at least. It's much more than that and more expensive. But at the end, if you've done it correctly and you have respect for the architecture, the history, and again, the context of what goes into this structure, you will have crafted a jewel that will last generations. And we did that. We opened that one in 94, 95, uh, you know, 30 years ago, practically. And it is humming. Uh, it's, it's still a jewel. It still gets enormous press and coverage and awards. Um, and in this case, it was such a hit. Prince Charles said, I must showcase this to the rest of my country. And he had a huge day long uh, seminar program there. He had the TVs and the Klieg lights and he gave a speech extolling the virtues of, and he hesitated to say this part of it, of American innovation and the entrepreneurial spirit where you can make something of a diamond in the rough. You just have to A, recognize it's a diamond in the rough and B, have the persistence and patience and chutzpah to give it a go. I'm sure chutzpah, <laughs> well, he, yeah, he maybe used I Maybe I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's very possible. I mean, there must be a few Jews that circulate around the uh, the palace grounds. Well, before we get to the penultimate thrill, uh, Italia, well, uh, you had a little experience with uh, Mr. Schroeder, uh, which was uh, not quite as, as upbeat as Mr. everything else. Schroeder at the time Talking was about President Mr. Schroeder. of Saxony in his first term. We had a perfect fight in the south southeastern octant of, of that state. Remember, it's a, Germany is a federal system of states and then a national government, a little bit like ours. There are differences. Uh, but he had a lot of authority in his state. And uh, because he only had a one-seat majority when he was running for re-election, remember, politics, politics, politics. When we submitted our application six or nine months before the election, there was all this haranguing and this and that. And finally, we got this little quiet phone call and said, uh, Mr. President would like to meet you in the cabin in the Black Forest. We're thinking ourselves, okay, can we just go to his office? No. And a series that that meeting was full of cigars and cognac and big talk and, and uh, you get to the business at hand in the last five minutes before he hops in his Mercedes and goes back to his office. And in essence, he said, you must freeze your application. We said, well, we got all the support in the world. He says, yes, you do. I noticed everybody seems to be supporting this, almost everybody, but not me. And if you force me to approve this before the election, I will have to kill it. And if I turn it down, I will kill it for good because I have to prove it. If you wait until after the election, well, that's totally different. I can approve it with the stroke of a pen. I mean, the next day, and after some reflection and realizing there was a gun to our head, we said, oh, how about if we just freeze this, you know, the good old set up a commission for another study. And he won re-election by more than one seat, but it was very tight. And, of course, the next day we called him up and spoke to his secretary and said, we're ready to go. Silence. So we called up a week or two later and said, hello, we're ready to go. Just like he said, let's have a coordination meeting. It's MacArthur Glenn calling. Silence.
And on the third phone call, his secretary took the message into him and said, MacArthur Glenn on the line. And his only response was, MacArthur who? And he had slit our throat so many months before and we didn't even know it. He had outmaneuvered us and that was it. We were not going to get an approval there. It was not going to happen. Yeah. Because Perfidious Deutschland, eh? All right, so life, life gets better because now you go off to Italia. La bella yeah. Italia. Con la familia Mazze. Not to be confused with la, yes, fa very la familia uh, Rosati. Uh, listen, when I first did a study of every... <laughs> yes. Can you say something without yes. being taken out? I'm very clean on this. <laughs> I, I, will I don't want this to no be names. your last interview. Um, <laughs> by the way, for those listeners, and when he says taken out, he means really taken out. The Italians, that's Italian style. Uh, right. <laughs> I, did, <laughs> I commissioned a study of every country in, in Europe uh, about where I should expand once France was a big success, as was England. And I specifically said, I'm not ready to go to Eastern Europe. And by the way, don't bother with Italy. Too complex, too many layers. Life is too short. And so I didn't even consider Italy. Uh, but they put Italy in there with their list of EU countries uh, and all these tables anyway. And there was one single statistic that leapt off the page that made me think, at the very least, why not go do due diligence and just love a few weeks in Italy? And the statistic was, what percent of the population owned a home? About 70%, 67%. And then that subset, what percent of them had a mortgage on that home? And all across Europe and America, it's 57% to 71%, depending upon the economics. It, but it's called it two-thirds. In Italy, 29%. And it stood out so much, I said, I called them up, you got a typo here. It must be 69 He says, no, 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 that's Italy. I said, well, why is Italy so different? Because you have three generations that live in the same house at all times, the grandparents, the parents, and the children. And then when one generation fades away, the, another one's starting, they stay in that house, they pay off that mortgage. It is their version of terroir, and they're going to raise their kids there. That's how old Italy works. And that means they have a huge amount of disposable income because they're not paying a mortgage. And then you go down to the next table, and it said, what percent of total disposable income is spent on textiles and shoes in Italy? top of the list with Portugal right behind it. Southern Europe, very fashion-oriented. Exactly. And so that was it. Convinced me to go down to at least do some due diligence. And uh, it was La Bella Italia. I mean, it is so beautiful. I went there on my honeymoon back to Tuscany. And by the end of the first week, I said, this is crazy. I think Italy not only should be on the list, it's the next one on the list. And that was it. I said, next one, Italia. And the family you worked with, the, the, the Matsai, Felipe Matsai, brought uh, vines and olive trees to Thomas he Jefferson did. in 1775. He also, as he was there That's explaining the art of viticulture to Jefferson, and those vineyards are still there, by the way. They're now called Jefferson Vineyards. And uh, he also kept explaining the idea of what is now known as the Enlightenment, certain principles. And uh, it was one phrase he kept using over and over again that... Uh, all men were granted the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And Jefferson said, wait a minute, say that again? That, that sounds really good. And of course, that's one of the bell 
other <laughs> phrases of the Declaration of Independence, backed up by the principles of the Enlightenment. All yeah. men are created equal if yes. you own land We're working and you're not on black. That. We're working. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm, no, I'm, I'm a big Jeffersonian. Oh, no, so no. Don't, uh, I'm not here to, to trash uh, TJ by any stretch of the imagination. No, and my, well, my daughter-in-law went to UVA. But so eventually, but, President Kennedy yeah. recognized Philippe, Philippe Metze for his contributions uh, beyond just wine. Uh, in the Patriot series of U.S. postal stamps in 1963, it was one of the final acts of the president uh, of his short term. And it was the only, to my knowledge, I don't know if it's still true, non-American who was designated an American patriot. Well, you know, at some point, the next time we'll talk, we'll spend a lot of time talking about Italy. I want to... There's a little interregnum between the time that you left uh, MacArthur Glen and you started this thing called Digiplex, which sounds like a, a multi-level uh, multi uh, apartment building. But in fact, uh, it's a data center. What is a data center and, and why? To, I don't know if we want to call Norway part of Europe. I, I find the Scandinavians to be something else, uh, almost German, but not quite. Um, but... Talk about a data center. This next the data center business you're involved in are where the cloud resides. The cloud is not in the sky. It has to come down to earth somewhere. This is the somewhere in our data centers uh, could have 30,000 servers in them. And each server could be full to capacity with terabytes and terabytes of data. Data centers are the 21st century equivalent of airports in the 20th century. You cannot have interstate commerce. You cannot have international commerce without airports. You cannot do it today without data centers. And just to carry the metaphor a little farther, an airplane takes off from an airport. At some point, it has to land somewhere. When it takes off, it has people on board. And when it lands, people stay on board and go to the next stop or they get off. When you click an email to be sent, it takes off from the modern airport called the data center, a server. And in that email are all bunch of bits and bytes of data. And when it hits the next server, which could be halfway around the world or next door, some of the bits and bat, uh, bytes of data get off and go to another server. Some of them stay right there. Depends upon what attachments, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to have these airports all around the world. And everything has gone from analog to digital, but now we're getting the next generation of digital, the fourth industrial revolution in effect. Uh, which is the convergence of massive digital processes from uh, the internet, internet of things, driverless cars, uh, artificial intelligence, et cetera, 5G. It's all coming together at the same time at the speed of light, and it all goes through and resides in data centers. It uses an awful lot of electricity. So, uh, so. Hence, uh, Norway, and, and what can we do? What can the Americans well, do to catch up? Uh, or about two and a half percent of the world's electrical power now comes out of or is used by data centers. And if those data centers are using fossil fuel, you're just throwing carbon emissions into the air from a very dense point source of um, uh, of, of emissions. In Norway, you have all those fjords, which are at the bottom of the huge mountains of snow. Snow melts every spring. It comes racing down through turbines. It generates hydroelectric power, 100% clean and endless, and is the least expensive power in the world. 
very close to Seattle, Washington area and Oregon, where they too have hydroelectric from the gorges. Um, but it's, uh, it's a place where all of our customers now, our biggest customers, are out of Silicon Valley because they use so much of the power. And, and over a 20-year lifespan of a data center, save $1.2 billion on the cost of power alone for 100 megawatts, which is a point of reference in the industry. So if you were a young investor like my son who plays the, and my 11-year-old grandson who's invested in the market as well, uh, should we be buying Digiplex you should be and buying geothermal the data energy? It's the single best performing subsector on the market. Uh, the whole um, Dow Jones is being driven by the huge big tech. Uh, that's where most of the gains are coming from. And until you have the full digital infrastructure rolled out around the world, and we are by no means there, even close to there, we're in the third inning, and there will probably be extra innings in this game, um, then that's a very good bet. It's a very good place to place your money would be in the, there are public companies in the data center sector. Well, let me say, this has been most illuminating. You made it manage to take something complex, which I don't understand, and make it almost intelligible to me. Uh, plus the uh, the handbook for how to deal with uh, with business here in Europe. So uh, once again, uh, the name of the book is Le Deal. As I say, not to be confused with the art of the deal. This is the real thing. Uh, Bryn Murphy, it's been a blast. Uh, thank very you very much for your time. And, thank uh, you for reading the. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at. Terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.